Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy. Crime. LGBT. Thriller. You have now entered the House of Mystery with your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. Heard on FM Los Angeles. 102.3 FM Riverside. And 1050 AM Palm Springs. Welcome back into the House of Mystery. And I'm now Warren, of course. And on the other side of the country, we've got Mr. David Rose Martino. <laughs> I'm back again. Yeah. With, with new names every, every uh, day. Well, the Rose. You're, yeah. You're the Rose. A rose, a rose by any other name, right? Yeah, that's right. So they had a, a hurricane uh, touchdown in Vancouver yesterday. Wow. Yeah, really? pretty wild. Uh, I put it on the thing. It's a pretty huge thing out in the bay. Um, it's, it was pretty incredible, actually. It never made it on land. It would have hit the airport if it did. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they've already had enough trouble this year. So. I know. Oh, man. Yeah, it's crazy. Oh. See, all the excitement happens up here. I know. Was everybody okay? No. Yeah, everyone's fine. They're all freaked out by it. But I think everyone's oh, yeah. fine. I don't think anybody really got hurt. It was just pretty stunning for people. That's all, you know. Yeah, I'm sure. And everyone was saying sorry, you know, Canadians. Saying <laughs> Canada. Sorry. Yeah, look, it's, <laughs> you know, sorry. Did that wind blow? Sorry. No, it's, it's, it's fine. It's funny. It's the excitement in Canada watching a tornado. <laughs> well, you know, don't expect it on the coast. Anyway, um, so now, <laughs> speaking of water, we are talking to an author that writes from across the big water. So he's uh, in in the UK, in England, and um, he's writing for, let's see, Pegasus, I believe, and his newest book is called A Fine Madness, and uh, this is Alan Judd. Thank you for coming on the show thank you well so um al 
you spell your name correctly, finally. Yeah, it, <laughs> it's very nice to meet someone else who does too, because there are too many with double L's, aren't there? Or E, yeah. or Y's, or U's. Yeah, I don't know what it is. Hmm. I, I, you know, I have to say it was my mother, because, of course, she named me. So, um, but, you know, I, that was a long time ago. It was like 60 years ago, so she yeah, well, my, spell it right. I was named really by my father because my mother kept suggesting names and he said, I don't like the color. And she couldn't understand what he meant. But he saw names <laughs> in colors. Synesthesia, it's called, the condition. He thought oh. everybody did. And he said Alan was a nice color, rather like bacon. <laughs> so, so that's me. You're, you're Alan Bacon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so now, how did you get into um, into this wild world of writing books, first of all? Well, I think it it came on with puberty for me, I think, the, the urge to be a writer. And for some years, I thought I was going to be a great poet. And I had a friend who thought he was going to be a great artist. And we sit around in cafes and smoke his cigarettes and drink coffee. And we thought that's how you—that's how it happened. That you became a poet or an artist. Or <laughs> uh, after a while, you know, we realised we were on the wrong track. And um, so I just started writing and writing and writing. I wasn't finally published till I was in my thirties, and that was a book that I'd written in my twenties and put away for seven years. Wow! And and now, so you do—you do mainly. Um, it looks like you're doing. Um all historical fiction? Is that kind of where you do? Uh, no, it's, it, there are several of my books that are historical fictions, and it wasn't that I set out to write historical fiction. I just was interested in the events and the periods that I was writing about, so it, it just came about that way. No, they're not all historical fiction, but you're quite right, several of them are. Do, is it, was this, what, what draws you to that? Is it sort of a fascination with... with things that happened? I think it is, really. I, there's so much that is extraordinary that has happened and so much that appeals to the imagination. And very often it's it's things that are quite well known, but there are important elements that are unknown that is, is very appealing and very attractive, I think. Um, in Marlowe's case, it was um, partly the the fact that I saw him as a Dostoevskian sort of character, you know, uh, atheistic in days when that could get you into serious trouble. And, of course, the whole business of his death, you know, in a, in a fight that he had himself provoked. And a lot of mystery about it, a lot of conspiracy theories, you know, where people thought he was really Shakespeare and all that sort of thing. It just intrigued me and had done for decades before I ever sat down to write the book. How, and so you must have to do a lot of research on a character like that, uh, you yeah. know, go back and find out all sorts of things yeah. surrounding them, different characters and people involved in their life. So um, how long does it take you to actually put together something like this? Well, in a sense, as I say, I was thinking about this book for decades, uh, but without having hit upon a way of doing it, until I read about uh, Thomas Phillips, spelled Felipez, who was the kind of great code breaker and code maker of the period and one of the spies who was integral to Francis Walsingham's Tudor spy network. And he he's an interesting figure in his own right. And I thought, well, 
why not see Marlowe through his eyes and present the book in that way, present Marlowe in that way, because there's good evidence that Marlowe was involved in espionage as well. So that's the way it came about for me. I thought that's a way into it. That's what I'd like to do. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I was always, I'm always interested in this. So now you've got a historical figure and there are things you know he's done, hasn't done. Yeah. Like you kind of know all that. Yeah. How do you build the fiction around this character? Like how do you decide what you're going to do there? Well, uh, in this case, it's a question of taking what is plausible. And there are certain things that you know uh, so that you can you can rely on those. And then when it comes to imagine things, you can say, well, you know, there's no evidence that he was involved in this plot, but he could have been. He was there at the time. He was active. He knew some of those who were doing it. So let's have it. Let's put him in it. So it's a question of plausibility rather than reality. And it is a novel, of course. So. As long as you make it clear that that's what you're doing, you're not saying this happened. You're just saying, you know, just possibly this could have happened. Yeah, that's a pretty interesting thought. It, it, how do people react to that? Like, as in um, historians, let's say people that that don't go into the uh, fictional side of of characters, and they actually write, um, let's say, about this person, more of a factual biography type thing. What, well, what, how do they react? Well, my experience has been that historians have been generally favorable so long as they're quite clear that you're quite clear that this is a novel. You're not saying this is history. Yeah. They quite like it when you do involve real history. And if you get it right, they like that even better. But but generally, they, they've not been, at least not to me, been anti about it. I think it's a question of clarity. Say this is a novel. I'm not saying this happened yeah. in the way that I'm writing it. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting thought. Um, it, it seems like a lot of history has its kind of narration or fictional side, or, or there's always a little bit of liberty that's taken with it anyway. There is. And I, I mean, another novel I wrote that you could call a historical novel is about the Kaiser, so about the death of the Kaiser. It's called The Kaiser's Last Kiss. In fact, it was filmed by Christopher Plummer um, two or three years ago under another name. He called it The Exception. And what I did was take the fact that the Kaiser died in Holland in 1941, which meant he died under Nazi occupation. And he was not a Nazi. And I thought, well, I wonder what that was like. And so there's a lot of information about the Kaiser in his last... 10 or 20 years. So I was able to draw on that to write this book about him, of this novel about him and his death, particularly, but also inventing things a bit. I mean, for example, I discovered that Churchill had invited him or offered to get him out of Holland and to England if he wanted to, which was a pretty brave thing for Churchill to do because he was pretty unpopular in England. But he didn't want to come. So I decided, well, I will have Churchill issue that invitation to him, but he won't do it in the normal way that he did, which was by the British ambassador. I'll have him send a spy out to get to know the Kaiser, and she could suggest it to him. So that was the historical basis, and that was the historical alteration. Wow. How? So 
do you do you take hmm, I guess you don't really take um a side politically or anything like that. There's no ambitions there to make them sound good or bad. No, not deliberately, but I think probably my fictitious my fictif, fictitious Kaiser <laughs> is a more sympathetic character than the real one was. I wanted to make him a kind of King Lear figure at the end of his life and, you know, regretting some of what he'd done and seeing the Nazis as bad. And in some ways he did, but in other ways he was a pretty ambiguous sort of figure. And I I suspect the real man was not the nice guy I have him end up as. Yeah, yeah, and well, it's so hard to tell. Do you go through a lot of newspapers to, uh, to find out things as well? Yeah, I read papers every day, but um, that's generally to do with current affairs, of course, and unless you're going back in history and you're looking through newspaper libraries. But that tends to be very particular sort of stuff. I quite enjoy research. Um, I'm reading about the 17th century at the moment because I'm thinking of thinking of doing a novel about Afra Ben. Now, who's she, you might say? Well, so did I, really. But she was a late 17th century playwright, very successful, and she was a spy. And actually, the idea of doing something about her was suggested to me by the historian Christopher Andrew, Professor Christopher Andrew. So, you know, it's educative for me to read about these periods. Well, I'm just wondering, too, with uh, Kaiser's Last Kiss uh, being turned into a film, I'm just wondering how that came about, and uh, did you have any say in the film adaption? I know writers usually don't, but I was just curious yeah. on that. Um, yes and no. Well, no, really. But it came about because there was a, a film producer over here who wanted to do it, and who, years ago, and paid me to write a script for it, which I did. He couldn't raise the money to do it because he'd been bankrupted a bit too often, I think. And um, and then he died. But he'd got Christopher Plummer interested in playing the lead role as the Kaiser. And Christopher Plummer liked the idea and took on the option on the the film and had the option for quite a few years before he eventually got it made. Uh, But he had his own scriptwriter and I had nothing to do with the production of it at all or i didn't even go to the script or or have any input into the into go to the scene or in, any input into the script so i would have done it's not unusual it's not unusual uh with films um a couple of my other novels have been filmed by the bbc and in those cases i didn't write the script either but i did have a more of a relationship with the script writers who would ring and say, what do you mean by so-and-so, or do you think it's a good thing if we do such-and-such? So it's nice to be involved in some way. But a yeah, film is a film, and a book is a book, and they're different mm-hmm. things. Yeah, yeah. Different type of writing, too. I, I don't know is, if I'd want to is. do it. You know, I think it I'd is. shy away. But but yeah, it, is, it is a different type, and it's a, it's a different skill. I mean, a, a script... The script has many fewer words than a novel, but you let the camera do the work, and a good scriptwriter mm. can do that without making speeches. Yeah, mm. so I'd be no good. <laughs> sure, <laughs> give it a go. Come on. No, 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 no. no I'm, you know, 
I, yeah, after all, you've got the right name, you know. Come on. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what they say. Uh, well, you know, I, one thing I find very curious. I, I'm a big, I'm a big uh, watcher of history, and I don't mean the terrible like Learning Channel, History Channel, Discovery sort of thing. I, mm. I'm more into the Smithsonian or more into curious sort of stuff, like more, more real history, right? And uh, but I wonder if you think. Um, a lot of people have actually forgotten or they, they don't realize what the world was like during, uh, you know, the, the Nazi time and, and Kaiser Wilhelm and stuff like that. Yeah. Do you think that it's gone so far that a lot of the young generation doesn't really understand what happened and how many rationings there were and how many problems and what yeah. it was like to live? Because now, you know, they're complaining about, you know, wearing a mask, or they complain about um, just just silly things that, and, yeah. they, they, and they like to throw that. Oh, this is like being Nazi Germany, you know, and, and it's because they can't yeah. go to a concert. That's right. <laughs> I, th- I think you're right, but it's it's human nature. Successive generations, as you get farther away from the time and the, and the series of events and the culture and the climate of the times, people people of course don't know about it. Um, they, you know, some people are susceptible to being reminded, um, but other people just, you know, I don't think they they like to imagine it at all. But the first indication I had was years ago when I was researching for a non-fiction book. I went to a library and the librarian there, who is a very helpful young lady who put out quite a lot of work and, you know, got things out that she thought I might like. But as we talked, I realized that she made no distinction between the First World War and the Second World War, and that Mm. to her, they were all the same. And I thought, yes, we are getting farther (laughs) away, you know. Yeah, And people of my generation could not not know that. But, but, yeah. Well, I wonder, I wonder if maybe it should be something they do in school more. You know, be a little bit more thorough about this, but you know, who knows? You know, uh, so with this world of conspiracy as well, and there's a lot of alternative history and facts out there. Are you worried about that as well, or do you you make sure you're clear from that that you are yeah. not that type of person? But um, it seems to be taking a hold in in a lot of people. I think it is, and I suspect social media has a great deal to do with it. But essentially, conspiracy. Lovers of conspiracy theories um, have have existed for probably as long as humanity. And they don't stop because every time you point out something that goes against the conspiracy theory, they simply widen the theory to include (laughs) what you put against it. So in the end, they kind of die out. I mean, I don't know whether many people still believe that Elvis lives. You know, but um, <laughs> well, I think they've forgotten about him. He's out of the spotlight. They've probably forgotten. So that's that's what happens in the end. But um, yeah. I mean, in more recent times, there were the conspiracy theories here about the death of Princess Diana. Oh, you know that know. she was really <laughs> killed by MI6, the British Secret Service, at the request of the Duke of Edinburgh. You know, which was just completely absurd. <laughs> but there were people who believed it. Yeah, we just kicked the guy off the show that tried to tell us it was yeah. Bilderbergs, right, and all that. Yeah. Stuff. 
it's, but it's, people it's, love conspiracies. I think it, it's it's often attractive to think there's a conspiracy. It offers an explanation for what otherwise might be random or boring. Yeah, yeah, it gives them an answer to someone yeah. to dislike. You know, the yeah, the good person play. and the back bad yeah. person. You know, and that sort of thing. You know, makes it easier, yeah. I guess. Yeah, cleaner. Um, so when when someone picks up a five madness and they take it home and read it and stuff, at the end of the the book, what is it you hope they take away from it? Ah, that's a difficult question. I hope they take away from it some reflection on life and death and what 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 we are and what is worth what is worth taking seriously. I hope that's what they take away from it. But as I say, I thought of my, my conception of Christopher Marlowe was of him as a Dostoevskian character. And I went through a stage in my youth of reading, in a way, too much Dostoevsky. I wrote, almost read nothing but for a long time. I loved the intensity of it. And that was something that I tried to get into Christopher Marlowe, who, after all, was only 29 when he was killed. So still a young man and still quite intense. He hadn't reached cynicism and detachment. So I hope people would take away some sort of feeling that this could have happened like this, that they would realise that a lot of what's in it about the spying did actually happen, and that Marlowe himself offers us some sort of honesty, some sort of view of the world of being honest with yourself about things. That's my hope, but probably rather foolish. <laughs> well, how was it like to get into the mind of um, Thomas Phillips and uh, Christopher Marlowe? Could could you hear their voices uh, well, in, in your mind? I, as you I wrote it? it. Yeah, I wrote it as Phillips's voice because it's written in the first person. Yeah, Phillips. And of course, you have to adjust your ear because we have, you see, examples of things that Phillips actually wrote. So you've got something to go on there. And mm -hmm. also, of course, we're talking of over three hundred years ago, well over. So. Although they speak a language that we would all get used to and recognize, you know, you've got to do something to show that it is different. It's not now. You, it wouldn't sound right to have them talking exactly as we talk. On the other hand, if you rendered them exactly as they talked, that would be a bit of a barrier for a lot of people. So it's a question of getting the tone right. And one of the things that I think we, in our times, find rather difficult is to get the the tone of religious. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, how get 20, 20, how get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Awareness that they had, right? Because religion for them was a bigger issue than it is for many people now. And you have to take account of that in how they saw the world. I wonder too, yeah, because in those times... When you when you look at uh, Christopher Marlowe, not only was he an atheist, but I, I believe wasn't he a homosexual as well? Possibly, um, I think probably, probably. Um, it's not known. There's no actual evidence that he was. But the way he writes about women characters and men characters uh, tends you to think that he found men more attractive, physically attractive, and that there were stories about him at the time that, you know, he said that all they that love not tobacco and boys are fools. Uh, remarks like that, were, if he made them, were quoted. Um, so possibly he was, but he wasn't being pursued for it. He, the, the court and the authorities at the time, who would, if they wished, pursue someone for sodomy, um, they didn't seem to, that didn't seem to be a factor with him. So we don't really know. He's not known to have had any intimate relationships, male or female, which doesn't mean he didn't have both or one or the other. Yeah, they had no social media back then. They didn't have cameras <laughs> they, in their phones. They didn't, no. And they didn't have newspapers either. That came no, it's just, you know, otherwise he would have been yeah. yeah, yeah, poor guy. And and so what's the, what do you think about the Shakespeare theory about him faking his death and becoming the... Uh, yeah, you know. I mean, it, it's 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 fun to theorize like that. It's complete rubbish. I mean, it's, it, it cannot be true. It means in order to have that, you've got to have almost everyone who knew Shakespeare involved in the conspiracy as well. Mm. Um, it just doesn't work. I mean, Marlowe and Shakespeare knew each other, and indeed they collaborated. And they were born in the same year, which is a remarkable coincidence. And Marlowe was the leading playwright at the time. I mean, Shakespeare was the up-and-coming one, but he, he wasn't on a par with Marlowe. And he, he they collaborated on plays, and, and Shakespeare quotes from Marlowe in one or two of his plays. And the indications are that he greatly admired him. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty interesting. You can find out so much more when you go through it. Do you, um, do you actually add fictional, completely made-up characters to the story as well? Um, I have... Um, added one or two uh, characters who were sort of fairly minor in the thing, but not major characters. The major ones are 
didn't I didn't need to because the major ones are all there. All these people are are just there, like Francis Walsingham and uh, the man who killed Marlowe in in this fight that Marlowe seems himself to have provoked. You you don't need to make up. You know, there are just one or two minor characters that I inserted when I wanted something to happen. I mean, what, one thing about the, the the one reason why there are so many conspiracy theories about Marlowe is that apparently. Elizabeth murders in Elizabethan London are quite well documented. You would expect to find a coroner's report, and no one could find one for Marlowe, nor any indication of where he was buried. And so that encouraged theories to develop as time went on. And then in 1925, an American scholar, a Harvard man, Leslie Hodson, who was a great Tudor scholar, made discoveries in the National Archive over here, just by a bit of lateral thinking. Instead of thinking Deptford, which is where Marlowe was killed, which is now a suburb of London, he thought Deptford in 1593, that was in the county of Kent, so we need to look in Kent mm -hmm. archives. And when he couldn't find the coroner's report, he thought, well, the man who killed Marlowe was pardoned, so there ought to be a pardon. So he went along and looked up the Kent pardons, and there it was, and that included the pardon and the coroner's report, with the names of the jurors and an account of how it all happened. I mean, a wonderful thing for a scholar to find. I mean, it must have been a wonderful moment for him. Yeah, wow. It's pretty amazing. When you, when you add those minor fictional characters, how do you decide who they're going to be? How do you create that? Well, it's it, in a way, it's... Creating a, a fictional character is a bit like imagining an historical character. If you're doing the latter, you've got something to go on. You know, you know how old they were. You know what they were doing. Sometimes you know what they looked like. Um, so, but f beyond that, you are imagining them. And a fictional character is just the same. You could think, oh well, I will have this this man as rather rough looking unkempt with a red beard and um, that's all you need to go on it's it's not too difficult but as i say writing about historical figures and fictional figures is fairly similar yeah that's pretty interesting um so so what do you think that uh when you're doing something like this i wonder if you did you find out or were you surprised by things that you found out about these characters I was surprised by uh, what I found out about Thomas Phillips and how people lived then. And, of course, this is all well known to historians. But if you were doing a, a job in government in those days, very often you, you didn't get any pay as such. You, you might be given rewards such as rights to customs dues, which you could then arrange as you, saw, as you, you chose. But very often people were having to fund things themselves or hoping for favours. And it was a pretty precarious existence. And I think the precariousness of their existence, even of quite well-off and well-to-do people, was a bit of a surprise for me. You know, we're brought up with bureaucracies. We're often brought up by bureaucracies. Many of us work in bureaucracies. Uh, we take them for granted. But things are much more haphazard then. And it's hard to put yourself back into that mindset. Yeah, because you have to really go back into that time and really, you know, make sure that um, your characters speak the way they should or, or 
yeah. have the knowledge that fits the time, right? Otherwise, yeah, quite. You know, and, it, and it's so easy to imagine them knowing things that actually they could not have known because it only became known in 1820 or something. So, yeah, you have to be constantly on your guard against that. It's, it's quite a, quite a. Uh, it's not a problem. It's just an issue you have to take into account. Yeah, you have to get right into it. Otherwise, yeah. otherwise you have your character saying things that, you know, yeah. are modern daytime kind of verbiage, and it should, doesn't work. You know, that's right. Yeah, I mean, you can't have, you know, I, I didn't. I, I do have William Shakespeare appear very briefly in the novel, but not named, and only by implication. Because if you had a scene with, you know, Christopher Marlowe and William Shakespeare, how does it go? You know, uh, will you have a drink, Will? Sure, Chris. <laughs> thanks. You know, it, it just doesn't work, does it? it? You can only do it. You can only send it up. You can only do it in a funny way, like the film Shakespeare in Love, you know, which is brilliant. I mean, in the way it sends it up. Yeah. But otherwise, but if you don't want to send it up, then you can't do it seriously. Yeah. Yeah, it becomes a. So now, it, um, if someone had never read any of your books before, which would you suggest that they pick up if there was just oh, one book? Oh dear, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It would depend on what sort of thing they liked. If they liked historical fiction, then I'd, I'd list those that deal with historical fiction. If they like spy novels, I'd suggest they start with Legacy, which was the first spy novel I wrote. If they like um, things of action, you know, military action, then I did one of those, my first novel, Breed of Heroes. If they like something that is more meditative about literature and life, then I'd say a novella I wrote called The Devil's Own Work, which was a result of my spending an evening with Graham Greene and his flat in the south of France. So, oh. yeah, I, I think it would depend on who they were, what they said they liked. Yeah. So um, so you, you kind of like the uh, Cold War time? For, yeah, yeah. For... Uh, most, my spy novels are basically Cold War spy novels, although one or two are set now, but they hark back to Cold War. Right. It, it's But it, it, you do a realistic one, or, or are they kind of like James Bond? They're as realistic as I can make them. <laughs> given that, that um, intelligence services in Western democracies, at least, are are bureaucracies that uh, generally don't go around bumping people off and and um, have to answer <laughs> to ministers and to budgetary pressures and all that sort of thing, and and are subject to the law. Yeah, yeah, but I I would imagine that you um, that isn't that a kind of a difficult subject to cover when you're writing because the more you make it real the less people will believe it that is a problem and i think a really great writer if you if you look at say what anthony trollope did in the 19th century for the church of england and cathedral closes and life in them and that sort of thing a really great writer writing about intelligence bureaucracies would be able to do that would make it interesting not because it's about spying but because it's about the people. That will be really interesting. But what people want when they pick up a spy book, a book about intelligence services, is they want spying. They they want the mythology. Mm. They want it all. So so it's a hiding to nothing to make it about spies, but without the spying. Yeah, it's just, you know, because, but, you know, aren't spies the ones that kind of can 
run around and kill 500 people in a second. Well, yeah, that, that's what people want, you see. So, um, I mean, one of the, the most successful spy writers at the moment uh, is someone I know quite well, Mick Heron. Now, Mick's, Mick's um, spies, are com- his, his spy world is completely unrealistic. Mick knows that, and it doesn't matter. He's not trying to say this is real. He writes well, and he tells a good story, and it's funny. And the people in it are memorable. That's what people need in a novel. They want action, incident, character, humor. You know, it's all there. <laughs> you gotta have, you gotta, you gotta have, uh, you know, those, uh, those lady, um, agents that wear the big, huge heels and they, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> Run around and yeah. jump building to building and, and they never right. break a heel. I just don't know how they do it. <laughs> and they've got to have stiletto smiles as well, haven't they? Yeah, they, they're Feel perfect. Your heart, yeah, yeah. That's well, that's. How, <laughs> I just don't. I, yeah, but people. Uh, yeah, it's weird. I almost think that they really buy into a lot of that. They think these agents are perfect and they're not human. You know. Yeah, that's right. And you realize that intelligence organizations are staffed with human beings who are exactly the same as, uh, let's say, people in NBC. Yeah, <laughs> I'll say they're probably better, but uh... yeah, they're probably they're not as ruthless, you know. They're... No, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, you know, I don't, I don't have any button on my door to lock people in when I'm <laughs> calling them up. <laughs> well, not yet, anyway. But uh, you know, that's because of the pandemic. How you, that's that's interesting. So, how do you um, when you're writing a book like this? I what kind of is um, like you do a lot of the research, but how do you plan your writing time? Do you actually can you can you log off and say, okay, well, from ten to two today, I'm going to write because I've got nothing going on? And can you sit down and actually write? Yeah, I mean, most writers have a routine, and because it's routine that gets things done, because you've got to get words on the page, and if you don't get words on the page every day, and you just wait till I feel like it it tends not to happen because the rest of life is just waiting to rush in and swamp you. So most writers either have, um, in my experience anyway, a number of words per day or a number of hours per day that they write. And when I was working full-time in the Foreign Office, my routine was that I had to write, I made myself write on four days out of seven. And I had a minimum amount to write each day and the minimum was set deliberately low so I had no excuse of not doing it and my average was therefore slightly more but if you can maintain that four days out of seven week after week after week at the end of a year you've got or less than that you've got a full-length novel hmm yeah yeah it's a, do, does the world around you affect you when you write so like when the COVID's going on and all this strangeness you know, well in some uh, ways i mean things like covid uh, was a, a boon in a way for writers because you know you've got no excuse for not doing it you, you sit at home and you get on with it uh, that was my experience anyway um but in other ways uh, it's things that are distracting it's the normal things of life like if your writing doesn't earn you enough not not to have a job or something then the rest of life comes in and you've got to go to work and you, you know, you, you just got to compartmentalize life and, 
um, details of life interfere. You know, if you're working at home and the, the dishwasher explodes, you can't just say, uh, sorry, I'm busy writing. I can't come see the fire at the moment, you know. Yeah. You just have to, you know, cope with other things and write when you can. So that's what I'm doing wrong. Yeah. I, see, I just leave the dishwasher. Well, you know. <laughs> yeah. Great novel is waiting to come out, you know. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I doubt that. Let's but... give it the chance. <laughs> Let's give it a chance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. See what happens. Yeah. See what happens. You know, nowadays anyway. Do you like the 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 new publishing world or the the way Amazon and all the the thousands of books that are being self-published that come out that well, I think it's a great boon for self-publishers, isn't it? Which used to be very difficult, but nowadays it, it's much easier for people to self-publish. And I think it's a good thing because amongst them, there will be some that are really worthwhile reading, writing and reading and that wouldn't have found a public otherwise. And Amazon I'm ambivalent about. I know lots of people don't like it because it undercuts independent bookshops, and I, I can sympathize with that. But on the other hand, it makes things available so much more. You know, you can look up on Amazon and say, is such a book still available? Can I get it? No, it's not in print. Ah, I can get it secondhand. You know, and I think it's probably been a boon for the secondhand books market. Yeah. It yeah, I think, yeah. yeah, I think there's good and bad to each of it. You know, yeah, we just, there is. We just have to weed through all the garbage. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know. Um, so, what do you what do you got planned next? Where do you go from here after after? Well, what I'm what I'm thinking of, I'm still researching into Afra Ben, this rather interesting lady who um, she was probably the first woman in Britain, when the first woman anywhere, I don't know, to make a living entirely out of her pen. And she was a well known enough playwright to be buried in Westminster Abbey. I mean, she she got on well, but she was also, as I say, a spy, and we have proof of her spine and as far as we know she never she she married but she married a mr ben who disappeared now whether they they just parted or whether he died no one knows and um she lived till she was 49 and she she never seems to have got pregnant or got the pox which in those days you know was quite an achievement on both counts and she was a generous spirited person and uh, she probably never stopped talking either, I suspect. But, you know, she knew she was on the fringes of the court. She knew people like Nell Gwynne, Charles, Charles II's mistress, got on well with them. She's an interesting figure. And the more I found out about her, the more I'd like to write about her. But I haven't yet got a way in. But I'm, but I'm waiting for a couple of books that, that may, may offer ways in. Uh, yeah, it's not like you can call them. Um, now, do you have a you don't do you have a website or you don't do any of that stuff? I, I don't. I don't have a website. No, partly through laziness and partly through ineptitude, and partly because I think the trouble is, the more time you spend on that sort of thing, the less time you spend working. Mm. It's yeah. like social media. You know, you can. I know lots of writers indulge or are on social media, and maybe it's helpful, but. All the time I spend on social media, I'm not working. Yeah, well, it's true, and you can get taken away from it, carried yeah, away you from can. what and you're you can doing. get obsessed by the wrong things, probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's probably not a good thing. So, well, that's all right. We will have your um, your website from the publisher up, 
yeah. and promote you that way and yeah. and Amazon where we can't. So it all works yeah. out. Thank you. Um, I really appreciate it. Um, hey, who, so who do you, um, who do you like to read? Um, you know, or do you have inspiration in your type of writing? Um, I, I, I'm fairly sort of, um, promiscuous in my writing tastes. I like all sorts of people. As I say, I used to love Dostoevsky, Kafka, um, Thomas Mann, you know, continental writers like that. Uh, but not only those by any means. Um, Patrick O'Brien, who write those, wrote those naval stories set in the Napoleonic Wars. I, I knew Patrick and much liked his books. I like Lee Child's books, you know, the, the crime thriller. Right. Uh, I think he sells a book every 90 seconds, doesn't he, somewhere in the world, <laughs> something like that, you know, which makes you grind your teeth. But um, in fact, he lives in the next village, or he has a house in the next village to me here in England, but I've never actually met him. Um, and I think he writes very well, actually, and, and what he does is, is good. But I also, you know, I just, if someone recommends something and it sounds good, then I'll I'll read it and see. Yeah. I'm well, never not reading. I think that's very important for writers. You should always be reading. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. It's probably the um, best piece of advice to give to someone that uh, I think it uh, is. Yeah. wanting to write, you know. Yeah, I think something. it is. Just read. Read more. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Well, certainly been a pleasure. Um, well, I'm glad you took me. the time. Yeah. Now, of course, uh, who we're talking to today is Alan Judd and his newest book is what we're kind of focusing on, but he's got a lot of great books. But the new book is called A Fine Madness. Um, it is like the best book. You have to buy this. Okay? So thank you very much, Alan John. Thank you. Thanks, Alan. Tired of wasting time trying to decide what to watch on your streaming service? Go to our website and look for the Martino Movie Reviews. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.